Hello and welcome to Man on the Clap Money Bus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do part two of a brief history of the English national team. So really where we left off with part one was effectively discussing England's great players and whether Alf Ramsey was an ideologue. So really part two is going to be a real discussion from sort of 66 onwards about you know, the national team and really concluding with where they are today. So, for me, the ghost of 66 isn't so much that England won the World Cup, it's really the, the aftermath, what happened afterwards. The players were all national heroes, and the manager was a national hero, but without wanting to sound too blunt of it, they didn't give back. You know, a few went into football management without much success. You're looking pretty much at sort of Jack Charlton and his sort of bluntly pragmatic Republic of Ireland team. A handful did media work, but at no point did they use their exalted status or bully pulpit to really outline how England should play. None had the desire nor the intellectual curiosity to enter into the FA in a technical role. So you had a situation where none of them went into youth coaching. None of them went into high levels of the FA in either a technical role or a management role. None of them, you know, outside of maybe Bobby Moore who worked as a journalist for, for a, few, a lot of years with the Daily Express but it wasn't the same kind of journalism that you would say in comparison with Johan Cruyff. Johan Cruyff's writing output was the bully pulpit writ large. It was a chance for him to speak directly to the Dutch people, to the Spanish people, to the world to a lesser extent and to outline what he how he felt football should be played and how the Dutch should play football and to an extent how Barcelona should play. Now you could argue, flip side of it, that it was incredibly arrogant and that, you know, it was to an extent self-serving. But the point was is that he had something interesting to say about football and he was willing to expand upon his ideas and to give debate back and forth, which is slightly different than, I think, what the traditional idea of an ex-pro working as a journalist where you're you're asked to maybe give your insight as a player but you're not given or none of the ex-pros who have become journalists have really used it in the Cruyffian manner in that regards yeah there's a huge difference between a half an hour debate on Dutch television with Johan Cruyff with a chalkboard going over the X's and O's, then it would be maybe having Bobby Char Bobby Moore at a cup replay giving you a match report. And that's not in any way, shape or form necessarily a criticism of Bobby Moore working as a journalist. His, he was never given any kind of major opportunity to become a football manager, and that is a an enduring tragedy. But, you know... You know, Alf Ramsey didn't stalk the halls of the FA teaching a future generation of coaches how to build the next great England side. As a result, a palpable sense of drift enveloped England and the national side. You know, the, the, the cast of managers who followed Alf Ramsey always lacked the, the political capital and were never able to establish over the long term or even the short term a style or a roadmap to success. England have never taken a young side to a tournament, simply because no manager can risk his job at a major tournament by taking a young side. The FA hierarchy too often bowed to the media and the fans' desperate desire for success, which hindered the manager as the inevitable fall guy. I mean, I think one of the examples would be the best example of someone who probably, out of all of the managers after Alf Ramsey, who probably had the largest bully pulpit, the largest opportunity in terms of a media profile, was be Kevin Keegan. 
you know, I, I've called Kevin Keegan a populist demagogue. I mean, he, he rose to the England job on a tidal wave of media and fan backing, which the FA adroitly or cynically, depending on how you want to look at it, you know, utilised to get you know, some support and to get him into the job. And yet he was always someone who could boost. He was a great booster in terms of himself and the teams that he managed. And yet he never used that bully pulpit in the sense, let's say, at Euro 2000 to say, well, the players that I currently have, you know, are ageing. I'm going to use this tournament as a precursor to the World Cup in 2002, where I feel the young players that I have, you know, the Frank Lampards, the Rio Ferdinands, the Jamie Carragher's, the Ledley King, the Gareth Barry... Michael Owen, all of those players at, in 2002 will be at their peak and Beckham and Scholes and so really you know, we're just going to give this we've got a difficult group in a very talented Portuguese side, Germans are always a hard out and the Romanians are an experienced tournament team, we're going to go at it with a young team, if we get knocked out it'll be good experience for when they get for the World Cup he never did that he never utilised the public support that he would have got from people to do so. I mean, one of the things that I think fascinates me is that his comment when he was co-commentator in the 98 World Cup against Romania, where he said, there's only one team that's going to win this after an England equaliser. The point was is that was palpably untrue. You know, the game was absolutely in the... <laughs> in the balance, but it was the sort of classic statement of someone who understood what the man and the woman and the kid watching at home or in the pub or on the radio would jump to, would say, yeah, England are going to go on and win this. Of course, between Graham Lasso and David Seaman, they make a horrendous error and England conceded a late winner. And that, and this is what fascinates me, is that that wasn't seen as a bad element. That wasn't seen as a poor judgment or you know a lack of tactical understanding in that he was then the England manager within you know less than 18 months but I think it's safe to say that out of all of the England managers a lot of the time they it was it's always been a job where getting a winning start is considered to be really important and always your first five or six games you're always compared with every other England manager that's ever come before you which is really just a terrible metric to use is that it doesn't take any it's not circumstance it doesn't it doesn't allow for whether you've got four or five friendlies or four or five competitive games but as a result it means that you can't really experiment straight off the bat often you know England managers the successful ones have the most power just as they leave. And that's, you know, Bobby Robson in 90 and that's Venables in 96. So in other words, when they would have the power to put, potentially influence the FA or the wider footballing culture, they're gone. So immediately it's the new guy that then has to come in and it's the new guy that then has that responsibility without any of the power that Robson and Venables in terms of getting to the semi-finals of Euro 96 and Italia 90 had. Effectively, the national team worked in an ideological vacuum whereby, in effect, almost a, a repudiation of the Alf Ramsey style. So in other words, the team of 66, outside of really Greaves and Charlton and Moore, weren't particularly... <clears throat> Famous. They weren't particularly dazzling. They were a lot of them were particularly talented, but generally very quietly effective. And so, with this ideological vacuum, eventually, almost as a the it was a polar opposite situation because you couldn't really recreate Ramsey or the '66 kind of squad or even the culture that produced those sort of players, England effectively fell back on the idea of the high-profile, the celebrity players, 
to sort of counteract the apathy of the high-profile failures of the mid to late 70s in not qualifying for 74, 76 and 78. The over-reliance on high-profile players really reached a, a sort of an apogee in 2006. But rather than see that as a, in some ways of a criticism of the people at the time, I, th I think it was an inevitable consequence. Because the 70s and to an extent some parts of the 80s, there was a growing belief that English players were tactically deficient. And so the golden generation, because they had decorated club careers with high profile clubs with success in Europe, and the idea would be that if you married in the traditional English work ethic, that by sheer talent alone, they would kind of smash this glass ceiling that all other England teams had failed. Because they just simply had the star capacity that outside of maybe 66, who are legends in this country, but are not legendary across the globe in the same way that the Brazilian teams of the 50s, the Brazil 70, or the, or the Argentine 78 team has. I think you can also see it as a cultural issue as well, is that the footballing culture had changed from 66. I mean, the 70s, you very much was a... You had the era of the playboy footballer, and that really sort of stemmed from sort of George Best, you know, becoming an icon, a global fashion style sporting icon, really from the, the late 60s onwards. And so... Really, with players like Kevin Keegan, their appearances on Superstars, their appearances on adverts. And as a result, the idea that, that if you look at the 90s, with Italian football being on British terrestrial TV every weekend, and how glamorous it was with these big clubs, with these superstar names, that with the sort of growing rise of the Premier League as a competitor, and then as the global football league of choice, that having such brilliant players all of the same age, and having someone like David Beckham, who was globally famous, it almost acted as a... as almost as a national confidence boost, that not only were, was our league now... You know, dominant in Europe, as you know, Sarah A have been in the nineties. Is that at key? You know, these great English teams, so Chelsea, Liverpool, Manchester, all had key English players playing for them, and almost in a way increased the popularity of the English national team in a way that was probably for the first time since maybe Euro ninety six, when there was a you know. A tournament on our doorstep is that any of the kind of negativity that really came from Euro 2000, maybe some of the negativity from the Glenn Hoddle issues, was changed because not only is that for the first time we had had a golden generation, there hadn't been in really English national team history a situation where we had so many young players at so many big clubs all having success all at the same time. Also during a period where English teams were doing well in Europe. In other words, when English teams were doing well in Europe in the 70s and early 80s, the English national team was doing very poorly and they didn't seem to have the same players that, you know, obviously Liverpool, the Nottingham Forest, you know, whereby a lot of those teams had, you know, in their key positions were home nation players. However, what the golden generation and I suppose the fans, the media and even to the players and management themselves in the FA, what they really fail to appreciate is that top level international football is at heart a collaborative enterprise centred on the great man theory of history. You know, Cruyff required the concept of total football to get the best out of himself as a player but also the interplay of his teammates and the coach to achieve group success. You know, it needed the Ajax team of the early 70s that won three, champ you know, three European Cups in a row, which then led to, you know, the success at 74 for the Dutch national team. I mean, if you look at the 
for example, the, the success of the Argentina from 78 to 90, it was really built off of two levels of ideological genius. Firstly, you've got Cesar Minotti's brilliant team. He utilises all of the talent that, at his squad, all of whom were intelligent, technically proficient players, and they win 78 you know, against a still relatively strong Dutch side. However, you couldn't, you know, as Brazil 82 show you, is that football was changing. It was becoming more defensive. It was becoming more physical. And as a result, playing that way, while beautiful in the eye, was unlikely to get you success at the rough end of the tournament, from the quarters, the semis, the finals. So really what you end up with is the second sort of, in effect, ideological genius of Argentine football in that period is Carlos Bilardo. So in other words, he's able to understand where football is going in the 80s and is able to then change Argentina's you know, ideology to fix that, to, to update Argentine football so that it is successful at that level. Because it is more, that football is more hard-nosed, it's more defensive, it's more rugged, it's more physical in terms of defensive midfielders, in terms of defenders, there's less goals scored. But at the same time, how he interplays that is to have a Menottian genius in Maradona, who is basically able to be the, the fulcrum, the absolute pivot for the entire team. He's really able to put the hopes, weights and expectations of the Argentine public and of the watching world onto his shoulders and really take that team to the next level. It's you know He's the heartbeat of an otherwise workman-like team. And that's 86 where they won it. In 90, they were even less talented. And really, almost by sheer force of will, his genius takes Argentina all the way to the final and a defeat. When you're looking at Cruyff and Maradona, is that not only were they great of their time, is that the tactics, the ideology, and the playing style really goes on. In other words, you know, Bilardo's tactics don't survive the 90s, but Maradona's style of play and the attacking influences on Argentine football is that Argentina in the 90s produced some of the most extravagantly you know, talented attacking players. You know, Claudio Lopez, uh, Fernando Redondo, Gabriel Batistuta, Hernan Crespo, just a... a Ariel Ortega, just an, an almost unending list. Yes, Juan Sebastian Verón of brilliantly technical players. And the football you know, of you know, Argentina in 94, 98 is far closer to Maradona and Menotti than it is to Bilardo. The real question, therefore, is whether England have had such a transcendental player. I suppose, for me, when you know, as I've mentioned with Charlton, I suppose what I always think back to is the '66 World Cup final, where Ramsey instructs Charlton to mark Beckenbauer out the game, and that German coach instructed Beckenbauer to do exactly the same. So in the end, they ended up cancelling each other out in the final. But if you look at it, while Beckenbauer became a totemic player, manager, and administrator in shaping. You know, Mannschaft, the German national team, in terms of at the you know in the seventies, in the eighties, and the lead up to ninety, where he coaches the team to victory in the World Cup final, and also then in terms of his role as a ambassador and one of the high, one of the sort of leading figures in terms of the administrative side of the German FA in making sure Germany get the 2006 World Cup, which was hugely important in terms of getting stadiums redeveloped, in terms of reacquainting the, the German populace to a popular, successful, younger national team than the age team that lost in Euro 2000 that have been knocked out unexpectedly in the quarterfinals in France 98. And if you're comparing, you know, Charlton with Platini, with Cruyff, you know, with Beckham, and even to an extent Maradona for their 
not just their playing careers, but their role in shaping Dutch football, Spanish football with Cruyff, with how Argentine football deals with you know Maradona and the legacy that he leads on, and the legacy that Beckenbauer. I don't think it's the same. I don't think Charlton is anywhere near. I think he's you know still a highly respected, decorated, you know legendary footballer, but you know his career post playing career is you he, he's a bit of a player manager for Preston North End and that doesn't end particularly well. You know, he has a very short caretaker spell at Wigan. He becomes a director at Wigan. He then becomes a director at United in the early eighties. You know, he's run a soccer school and that was very successful. But it's not quite the same thing. I don't think most soccer schools I would say would have had a hugely you know, important legacy in terms of developing the next young talent. I think it was a business and it had some, you know, fringe benefits in terms of teaching kids football. But it's not anywhere comparable to the work that Cruyff did at La Misa when he was Barcelona manager. It's not the same difference as, you know, Beckenbauer and the German hierarchy in dealing with, you know, Germans' relative decline in the late 90s, early 2000s. And, you know, I've... My point is, I would always believe that had Bobby Charlton, you know, become a head honcho in the FA and maybe ran how our youth development was done, that we'd be in a better stage now than, you know, having just left it up to the FA Blazers as such. Without the platonic ideal of a team or a style, England were, and the national team were at the mercy of politics to an extent. Without a sporting solution or a technocratic level of management outside of minor figures such as Trevor Brooking and Howard Wilkinson, both of those figures who really lacked the public profile and the bully pulpit that were afforded to Platini in France and Beckenbauer in Germany. And obviously with Platini, not only does he affect French football, he ends up becoming a major player in, you know, in UEFA. Obviously, he ends up with his downfall, as many people have in dealing with FIFA, with the fallout of the end of the Blatter era. But I think some of how Wilkinson's ideas have, at the time, were criticised. And I think, in the end, some of his pathways have become successful and led to the current success that a lot of our youth teams are going through right now. But the problem is with youth development and long-term youth development at a technocratic level is that it's not so much what you do it's the public persona that you give to it and this is where one of the issues really lies is that Howard Wilkinson was considered a fairly dour public figure you know he was wasn't particularly telegenic he wasn't particularly charismatic and the problem is, is that while he was a particularly successful manager, he was the last English manager to win the league championship. But he did it in 1991. He did it in the pre-Premier League era. And that his managerial career, you know, by the mid-90s, he was considered somewhat out of step. You know, when he left Leeds in, you know, 96-97, he never really got offered any large longer term jobs in the end going up to the technocratic role was almost as if a football manager who leaves and then goes to be a director of football at another club it was seen almost in some respects by the media as a jobs for the boy situation almost like a, a semi-retirement in other words whereby he was no longer under the sort of day-to-day pressures of being a manager he was therefore had this kind of woolly job at the FA which was really in many ways completely and utterly unfair but it was a question of perception because really any of the reforms that he brought in at that point wouldn't you'd only see the benefits of it five to ten years down the line so it really does not just require expertise in the sense of being good at your job it requires having the ability to sell your ideas to journalists to the FA and to the wider public as a whole and that's really where Howard Wilkinson wasn't as effective. Because people like Beckenbauer and Cruyff 
had such gravitas and such national respect and were considered as heroes is that and people were always likely to believe them and what they said and to give them the the political capital to do so. And Brooking, you know, how Brooking definitely because he didn't have a particularly famous playing career and his managerial career was, you know, Lees wouldn't I think also what what didn't help is that he was replaced by George Graham, who was again a fairly dour figure, and George Graham then pushed Leeds on, and then you had David O'Leary, you then had the sort of Ridgedale era, which made him look more worse than he was as a manager. I think Trevor Brooking, also because his issue was more along the lines of, you know, he'd been a pundit, yeah, and he wasn't a particularly pop, yeah, I think he was considered a decent pundit, but nothing more, nothing less. You know, he'd never, you know, he was just associated with West Ham. His international career, again, while a particularly great player, he, he was, you know, part of the classic injured player that was taken to a World Cup and wasn't able to have an impact when England needed the most. Whereby, I think if you'd got someone from, you know, the, the 66 team, I think that would have been different. I think they would have had that political capital, that cultural cachet that you need to be able to you know, undertake reform and to get, you know, reformist figures in at the technocratic level, not necessarily at the public facing. Therefore, it was left really to the, the FA and the FA Council to chart the course of English football at international level. You know, with, you have isolated success and that's, with Robson and with Venables. But this really merely covered up the lack of direction in terms of facilities and youth development in which England were rapidly falling behind the rest of the world. What Venables, who had managed abroad at Barcelona, and Robson, who would go on to manage abroad with distinction, had was a managerial level of expertise and success. So Venables had taken... Barcelona to the European Cup final where they'd lost on penalties to Stal Bucharest. Yeah, Robson had had success in Europe and domestically with Ipswich. So there was kind of in a way a link back to the past in terms of Ramsey's you know, managerial breakthrough at Ipswich. But I suppose the argument that you could say is, is that that was maybe more happenstance than a sense of a coaching chain. So in other words it wasn't Al Ramsey mentoring, you know, Bobby Robson, I don't feel that took place. Or not to the extent that it would have benefits to other coaches. I don't, I can't, I don't see really a managerial tree off of Alf Ramsey. In the same way that you have a managerial, you know, tree off of Johan Cruyff. In other words, the if you ever look at the um, Barcelona team that beat Sampdoria in the 92 European Cup, all, all of those players went on to managerial success in one way or another. You know, Guardiola, Rijkaard, Van Basten. Oh, sorry, not Van Basten, but um, Ronald Koeman. You know, you just go through the list. They all have you know, relatively successful managerial careers off of the back of that, of Cruyff's influence. You know, even some of the great Milan teams, some of the, their players of the 90s have gone on to managerial success. And both of those setups and teams had players that had gone abroad. So, so really as an unintended consequence of the English ban from playing European football that was enacted after a Heysel disaster, is that a generation of English players either went up north to Rangers and Celtic or went abroad. So you're talking about Hoddle going to Monaco, uh, Chris Waddle went to Marseille, you know, off of the back of... And you also had players like Ray Wilkins, Lisa Blitzer. There was a generation, really, of, of English pros that had gone abroad and had taken on the ideas, and that really carried on even into the 90s, so after a success at Italia 90, David Platt went on to have a you know, fantastic career in Italy, you know, primarily at Sampdoria, but he played for the likes of Juventus, 
Gascoigne had a period out playing with Lazio. So when married up with their success at Italia 90 and Euro 96, it really showed that when properly coached, the English players had the aptitude to both succeed at the highest levels in major tournament and in major leagues, and that managers could do as well. So in other words, when you know Robson has great success with Porto, it then leads him to replacing Cruyff at Barcelona and taking them to European glory. And that effectively worked as a short-term band-aid, is that when you took away... Gascoigne with his major injury that he received in the 91 FA Cup final. When you took away Robson's tactical sense when he you know, retires from the England job after the end of Italia 90. Is that when you put Graham Taylor in with a similar selection of players, maybe not quite as good as the Italia 90 squad, immediately results go on a downturn. While, you know, as unlucky as Graham Taylor was in certain regards and how in many ways he was an ill-judged appointment is that England then don't qualify for World Cup 94. They you know, get knocked out in fairly ordinary fashion in Euro 92. We get given the line that the success of the you know, Spanish team, well, sorry, the, the Scandinavian teams of the late 80s and 90s is because of the Nordic style of life, which is far more outdoors than English children, which is, you know, just fundamentally ridiculous. You know, simply the, the Danish had some fantastic players in the late 80s and to an extent in the early 90s, and that they had, their players, best players had gone abroad and improved themselves. So you talk about players like Schmeichel, you know, the Lauger brothers, and, you know, they were coached by, relatively speaking, visionary managers that were able to ascertain that they had, you know, a fantastic crop of players and to simply to let those players go free and perform at their highest level and work as a team, whereby England didn't have that same level of coaching ingenuity if you're talking about Graham Taylor and that's you know with respect Graham Taylor was a a great footballing man and the success that he had at Watford is something that should be always noted and even some of the success that he had at Aston Villa but what he wasn't was a tactician who would be able to succeed at the highest levels of international football <laughs> However, by the end of the millennium, both had declined precipitously in terms of English players going abroad and English managers going abroad. And now English football was becoming increasingly insular, but at the same time simultaneously facing an unprecedented influx of foreign players and managers as the money from the Premier League and TV deals starts to have an impact on the game. <laughs> The precipitous lack of funding at grassroots levels, coaching, and the overt weakness of the FA's coaching badge at the professional level led to the hiring of Sven Juran Eriksson in 2001 by Adam Crozier. To my mind, put simply, it was an exercise in outsourcing, a political solution to a social problem. You know, effectively, the FA were unable and unwilling to address the infrastructural issues that stemmed from the you know, underfunding, the abandonment of youth and coaching development. Effectively, the FA had really taken a, a back seat and they had left it to the Premier League clubs. They had left it to the Football League clubs to essentially, with their coaching academies, they were the ones that were going to, you know, effectively develop the next level of great English players. So, in other words, they abandoned Lillishaw, they abandoned... Really, there wasn't as m anywhere near as much central control. And yet, at exactly the same time, if you look at the German strategy, they took even more central control. They spent even more money on their grassroots coaching and development. I mean, when I say outsourcing in terms of 
coaching if you look at continental Europe so Spain France Italy is that you can become a professional coach even if you're talking about you know under 10s under 13s under 16s and you can make a decent wage you can earn a living wage whereby in this country effectively football coaching is far yeah you've got far less facilities and also far less pay it's you're more paid along the lines of some a, a basic child mind. You're not considered a a skilled professional in that regard. Or if you are considered a skilled professional, you are not paid like one, and you are not kept like one. You are not. You know, you're effectively half a step up from the you know dad on the sidelines who just basically cuts up the oranges for half time, which is just ridiculous, and it is damaging and it's also entirely unorganized in other even today it's still relative it's still expensive it's still time consuming it's not something that you can maybe even aspire to as a career it's there's not really the university degrees or even the institutes that would allow you to effectively take coaching as something that you can dream of from being a kid and having a career progression that you do have in Germany, for example. And the very problem of leaving it to market forces is that in this era, the early two thousand, the late two, sorry, the late nineties, the early two thousands, is that the football league clubs go through the collapse of ITV Digital, and their revenue streams go completely crater. You know, a handful of clubs nearly go to the wall. A lot drop. You have the Leeds problem. So they're not in a position to really deal with funding youth development or prioritising it or even necessarily getting great at it. They're, they're at this stage in a survival. They're trying to write down their debts. They're trying to really, you know, cut back from all the money they spent expecting that ITV Digital would be, you know, their equivalent of Sky. In the same way that when the German League had this problem when the Kirsch Media Group collapsed, is that the central, the FA and the government really stepped in and put the funding in there to make it worth their while. So in other words, these teams were able to use youth development as a means of really getting back to financial health. So instead of spending all the money on you know, big foreign signings, they were spending their money on youth development, knowing that the infrastructure was being built within Germany through the government, through the FA, that would basically allow them to bet on it as a structural you know, method for greatness. So really when looking at the FA, and I, I think you also have to mention the profound impact that you know, funding and building Wembley had in terms of its the FA's increasingly corporatised nature. In other words, you have someone like uh, Adam Crozier. A lot of... There was the... And again, this sort of comes back to a sort of more political level, is that instead of having sort of football executives who were experienced, who'd grown from, you know, entered the FA and risen to the top, you increasingly were headhunting, you know, executives from other industries who only would have a relatively limited experience of football and simply putting them into management and effectively almost as if it's leadership by management consultant. You know, so in other words, they became more PR savvy and more reliant on the short term over the long term. So in other words, you get Sven Juran Eriksson you get, you know, the palatial Wembley, yet you don't have the long-term funding for, you know, football pitches. You know, FA becomes sort of increasingly over-reliant on strategic partners with corporate entities. You know, like McDonald's, Carlsberg, any number of different brands, and essentially subcontracting it out. So in other words, you're allowing youth football to become synergised with corporate branding and marketing. 
you know, and this then when you compare with the FA Council, it's become more out of step with a changing world. They become, it's white, it's pale, it's blazers, it's old, and it is just not representative of the world and, you know, of what youth football is in this country in the 21st century. <laughs> It's always important to note when you're talking about international football that the technical director is always more important than and more influential than any manager on the touchline at a World Cup. Because the manager at the World Cup it makes changes that everyone can see, yes. But the person that gives you the tools and the players and the resource is the technical director. And the technical director's one decision at any given time, will have will impact over you know World Cup cycles, European Championship cycles, in a way that any manager, even a long-serving manager, won't have and cannot have that level of impact as such. The abiding point of international football is that you know the ideological basis, which which I've been talking about, it, it can't be a top-down process, or it can't be. You know, there have been instances where it has been top down, but that's never successful in the long term. In the end, it, you, it necessitates, it requires you know, great players to interpret, to shape that style of play. You know, to successfully enable such an ideology, you don't just birth it, it's something that needs to flourish into the next generation. It, it's usually underpinned by you know, sustained club success. It's, and then that feeds into success at you know, international level. And as a result, when England tried to do, you know, tried to create, you know, in other words, when people were talking about the idea of an England DNA, the difficulty is, is that it's almost impossible to do it you know, from such a low level. You know, you can't do it when you've just lost to Iceland in the second round of the European Championship. It's a lot easier to do it when you've just won the World Cup, when you've just won the European Championship, or you've had a fantastic group of players that have led you to the final, like the, the Dutch in 74 and 78, which is why, in some respects, I'm critical of the 1966 squad, in that... They were brilliant in winning the trophy, but then the aftermath was just left to the next person to deal with. There was no longer lasting... They didn't create an England winning DNA, or they didn't articulate it, or they didn't try to help create that next level of players so that the success wasn't just an isolated incident that you can that people can dismiss as saying, oh, well, they had home advantage. Look at all the other World Cup teams that have won or outperformed because of home advantage, rather than giving the credit to the players for doing so well. I mean, in many ways, I mean, this is something I probably haven't mentioned enough, is just how unlucky England have been in 70, in 90, in 96. You know, there have been so many near misses, and... The problem is, is that England always seemed to be on some level working from a disadvantage that the Brazilians, that the Italians and that the Germans don't seem to be operating on. Or if they do have a bad period, they seem to be able to recover from it a lot quicker than we do or have different levers. In other words, Italy have had a succession of very talented managers. So in other words, the classic example is the squad that you know, Antonio Conte took to the Euros wasn't a particularly fantastic squad. However, by his own tactical ability, he was able to mould them into a unit that got into the latter stage of the tournament, whether England have had these great squads on paper that have precipitously underperformed. And, you know, while Gareth Southgate isn't England's first ideological manager, I mean, my argument would probably say that you'd have to share it between sort of Venables and Hoddles in the sense that Venables sort of laid the foundations in terms of, like, the Christmas tree formation and bringing in sort of younger players, so, for example, Ian Walker, Saul Campbell, Jamie Redknapp, Darren Anton, giving those players opportunities at a major tournament... And sort of then Glenn Hoddle was able to 
then jump on top of that and build upon it in what culminates in the victory at La Tournoire, which is really when England played some of their best ever football in beating the French that ended up becoming the world champions a year later, an Italian team that, you know, in 98 went to the quarterfinals and were knocked out by the French who won it on a penalty shootout, and the Italian team that went in Euro 2000 were within one minute of winning the entire tournament, and a Brazilian team that got to the final, you know, that's an absolutely high level performance with a young, somewhat inexperienced squad. <laughs> but I think where there's sort of hope is that Southgate's really the first to come from a sort of technical FA background. Someone who has looked at it from a top-down perspective. You then have, you know, Dan Ashworth as well, and in his attempts with, you know, St George's part, with creating an England DNA. It's a cause for cautious optimism. I mean, of course, with the Mark Sampson imbroglio, it raised questions, and some of those questions I don't think have been fully answered as yet regarding the culture and, I think, the makeup of the staff. At times it can appear very white and very chummy, and I think that question was sort of raised when, you know, Phil Neville was given England women's manager's job, and he's done a really good job so far, but at the same time he hadn't applied. It was, you know, a member of the media brought it up to an FA person as a as an aside, as an option, at a drinks reception, and the FA guy thought, ah, that's a brilliant idea, and within a few weeks, Phil Neville was England women's manager. That's not a best process scenario in any way, shape, or form. And really, with St George's Park, you're now seeing some impressive results at various you know, England youth level, and it suggests that possibly we may end up with a bottom-up solution. I've talked about top-down, the idea that, you know, the England manager would somehow, in like, you know, with Capello, would by just sheer force of personality and experience and success, would drill England into, you know, performing better, which didn't work. I think Fabio Capello was massively out of touch, was looking for a payoff and had virtually no interest in English culture, English players, and found the whole thing fairly, faintly baffling. But with a bottom-up solution, the idea is that you will just have wave after wave of you know, brilliant young English players, all with the same DNA from the youth system upwards. I think that's potentially a positive, but the problem is, is that usually the bottom-up solution only really works for smaller countries. I think the classic example would be Croatia in World Cup 98. In other words, they'd only just become a country. You had a whole selection of players all around the same age who'd grown up together, and effectively they were able to become the national team almost en masse, and were, as a result were a, almost played a little bit like a club side, and were then able to, you know, all, a lot of them had moved abroad and had success, you know, in the major leagues in England and in Italy and in Spain, whereby the problem is is that that usually is the purview of smaller countries where you can have a, a brilliant golden generation, you can train them through the national team, and they will also they will all get into their club sides at, you know, at local level, very young, and they will then move across to Europe and get into you know the top level teams very quickly. Whether with English football, I don't know whether you're ever going to have a situation where enough of those young players are going to get enough of a grounding at, you know, or a foothold at some of the bigger English clubs. I mean, I know we've had a situation where players like Jaden Sancho, where Adamo Lookman have gone to Germany and got first-team football. But whether you're going to have enough of those players coming through en masse to be able to really demand that an entire England team really get replaced. Because England are well in the top 20 and are still, you know, you've got players like Harry Kane, Ali, Ruben Loftus-Cheek, clearly, you know, Raheem Sterling, they are not going to be easy players to replace, especially with a younger player. But it's definitely something that is... I think if you would compare the current state of play with... 
Southgate with St George's Park and if you compare it let's say with the Ericsson era and the concept of you know English football effectively and the FA having outsourced responsibility on creating a a national team identity and ideology a style of play to a magical foreigner who will sort everything out you know, like anything with to do with, with outsourcing, it beca- it beca- proved ruinously expensive. It was, you know, he was on huge wages to begin with, comparable with other national team bosses. You know, it was, yeah, and they gave him, you know, really extremely ill-advised, lucrative contract extensions. But in the end, Ericsson's... Ericsson looked the part. He looked like a chief executive he, you know he had the you know what he had the frameless glasses he had the sharp suits you know he had a air of you know executive control but it was a facade there was no tactical underpinnings to it in the end you ended up with a his doctrinaire commitment to four four two. It just it became almost an absurd experiment in in Henry Ford's management ethos, in that England played every conceivable midfield formation as long as it was a four. You had the flat four. You had the diamond four. You had wingers without wingers, defenders in midfield, strikers on the wing, centre midfielders on the wing. Any kind of connection, you know. I've called it an abrogation of responsibility. You know, it was the quick fix answer at extraordinarily overinflated prices. You know, it didn't deal with any of the infrastructure. It just threw money at it, and that's often what you know. And when I talk when I talked about political, that's what a you know a political situation is is when in you basically have a panicked situation and you just throw money at it. You find money from somewhere, you throw it at it, and you hope that the quick fix will basically stop the public anger and will solve just enough of your problems that, you know, whatever problems are in the long term will be dealt with maybe by your successor or will, you know, of their own free or will resolve itself as such by the next five-year plan. I think one of the, the issues that I think your English football has to... You know, and specifically Southgate have to worry about is the idea that we don't just perpetually end up with a four-year plan, you know, almost like a Stalinist four-year plan. In other words, oh, well, the next group of brilliant young players will come through and they will solve everything. <laughs> and, oh, it's not, this, it's not this group of players, it's the next group of players, which will, you know, it just creates a endless self-perpetuating hype machine where in the end there doesn't ever actually seem to be any jam today that's something that we have to worry about and I think you know with Southgate my question will always be is there a transcendental player in English football at the moment we've already got in terms of Harry Kane a great technical striker you know he's in the the same category of Lineker of you know, other traditionally great English forwards you know Michael Owen it's whether Harry Kane can become something closer to a, a Gerd Muller in terms of goal scoring output whether he can become more like a Ronaldo a Messi or whether you know a Deli Alley or a Marcus Rashford whether a Ruben Loftus-Cheek whether those players because that's where you would then get the I suppose, the beginnings of a style of play and of an ideology. It, at this stage, I would probably put Southgate somewhere close to a Alf Ramsey in terms of step-by-step process that he's done. He's decided how he wants to play, and he's based that on the players that he has at his disposal. So that means that, you know, Chris Smalling, who's a perfectly acceptable international centre-half, isn't selected in fact that they've taken inexperienced centre-halves but those players Southgate believes can better do 
his plan in the same way that you know John Joe Shelby and Wilshire again talented players who can do a role but if they don't you know Southgate has said I don't believe you can be effective in the system I'm playing and there are players who I want to focus on more so in other words the Allies, the Rashfords, the Loftus-Cheeks, the Sterlings, who he feels are more dynamic than Wilshire and Shelby, which has a, he has a point on. So I'm going to end this podcast on a, I suppose, a down note and a positive note. So we'll naturally start with the, the down, the down note. English football still has a major problem. That's both at school level at amateur level, and even to an extent in professional and youth development, is that we don't have the pitches. And the pitches are of poor quality, the facilities are expensive, they're badly maintained, you know, there's a decline in people playing football on a weekly basis. You know, 11 aside football is almost in, a, in an ex- inexorable decline. And, you know, it's expensive to... Start up an 11 side team, it's difficult to get the numbers, the pitches are expensive, any number of issues that, you know, we've almost privatised five-a-side football. We're, we are reliant on private companies to produce these facilities and therefore it's a situation where you are absolutely at the mercy of the market in terms of paying for pitches. Now, the FA is certainly not entirely to blame for the wholesale neglect of public services in regards to sports facilities. You know, from the late 70s, from the 80s onwards, it's been an unending government scandal. You know, the ransacking of our parks and our facilities. But this is where I come down to, is that the world of football and the FA were ineffective politically and publicly. They were not able to act as a uniform organisation that the team of 66 did not rail against the fact that our park football uh, that the facilities were bad that they were weren't maintained that there was no park keepers any number of you know and it was important that our players that our managers that our journalists keep on focusing on this you know it's I'd say it's certainly true that England fans, the players, journalists, we've over-focused on the importance of the England manager's job. We've rendered it an almost impossible, you know, job. And But it was the responsibility of the FA and it was a responsibility of the... of our greatest generation to really... to have done more. We, we've just... It's a collective failure on, on all sides, really. But I'm I'm hopeful with the potential sale of Wembley and with this new generation of England team led by Gareth Southgate with St George's Park that we really are getting into a sunny up you know, uplands. You know, it is very noticeable in the last, I suppose, twelve to eighteen months, just how many German teams are now trying to to basically trying to poach young English talent to get into their first team, to get into their youth structures and the impressive results that our club sides are having in European youth tournaments and in the uh, youth equivalent of the Champions League. And with the amount of spending on, you know, youth academies, you know, in all four divisions, there is, I think, cause for hope. And almost, if you look at the impact that play, people, managers like Jurgen Klopp and Maurizio Pochettino are having on young English players, there is there is something to be said that you know when there may not be a huge amount of English players playing in the Premier League, but the players that are are playing at a far higher level than if you compare it with the nineties, where there was far more English players playing, but the quality of the league was far less in terms of the European results that that English teams were getting. And I think you can see with the growing support that the England's team are getting and the changes of attitude 
that this English team are far more are far more likable, and I think people have you know the average football fan on the street has an understanding not only of what Gareth Southgate is doing now, but what he is doing to prepare the English team for the future. And I think there's a sneaky suspicion that this English team might do well at the World Cup. Thank you for listening. Come on, England. <laughs>